before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. I'm flying solo today, but joining me for what I hope is going to be a really interesting and extremely pertinent conversation about inflation is James DeVolos of Horizon Kinetics. I've been a big fan of the firm for a long time, as Steve Bregman and I had some wonderful conversations around the ETF market uh, and its structure during my time at Real Vision, and those really opened my eyes to a, a lot of things for me and, and led me into a lot of Mike Green's work about passive investing. So I was really intrigued when Horizon launched an inflation ETF back in January of this year. Now, something that as we've gone through, Bill and I, the Endgame series, the one subject that keeps coming up time and time again is this debate between inflation and deflation. Now, as I'm constantly boring myself to death with it, I just think that that decision are we in an inflationary or a deflationary environment is arguably the most important evaluation that everybody with a portfolio has to make at the moment. If you still think we're in a deflationary environment, then you should be all set. But if you think there's any chance of inflation becoming the clear and present danger going forward, then you're going to have to absolutely reevaluate your entire portfolio. Because I suspect there aren't many portfolios in the world today that are set up to do well in an inflationary environment. James and I are going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the background to this vehicle, talk about the way they think about inflation and the way they've structured it, because I think it will be, as I say, a very pertinent and a very interesting conversation. So without any further ado, let's welcome James DeVolos to the Grant Williams podcast. James, welcome to the podcast. So happy that you could spend a bit of time to sit and chat with me. Thanks for having me. Really excited to, to be here today. And I've been a big fan of yours for, gosh, probably a decade now. Well, thank you. The signs that I'm getting older keep mounting by the day, unfortunately. <laughs> thank you very much. Now, you know, listen, the reason I'm so thrilled to get a chance to talk to you is with the series of podcasts that I've been doing with Fleck, The Endgame, when people ask me what my key takeaway has been from that, I keep coming back to the, this idea of inflation returning. And it seems to me, whether it's coming back tomorrow or next week or next year, it feels like we're at the point now where it's becoming a threat that needs consideration once again. And, and we've had so many smart people on and this subject keeps coming up. And, you know, what I find fascinating is there are supremely brilliant minds on both sides of the argument. And so, you know, my own view is that inflation is most likely to be in our future and it may not be for a while and we may get a deflationary uh, shock before it happens. But I think it's maybe close enough that people start need to start kind of factoring it into their portfolio allocations and stuff. And so with what you guys at Horizon are doing, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity for you and I to sit and chat about inflation and get your kind of thoughts on it for someone that's come to view it as very much an investable opportunity at this point in the cycle. So, so I'd love to kind of get some background from you on how your thoughts on inflation have developed, where they've come from and, and how you've kind of built the framework. And then we'll get to how you're investing in that a little bit later on. Sure. And I think a good a good place to start is our, our firm where we're fairly fundamental, traditional, I'd say eclectic value managers. And 
everything that we do is, is done within the context of a evaluation framework and business quality assessment. But probably five, six years ago, I remember going into our investment committee and Murray Stahls, our CIO, and he kept bringing up different episodes of fiat currencies being debased within the context of the Fed just continuously keeping rates very low, money supply growth, deficits, growing federal debt. And the, the, the day that I think it really first dawned on me, it wasn't the day, but he came in with one of his, he's famous for his, his reading and his, his book collection. Uh, I think it was Sidney Homer, The History of Interest Rates. And I mean, you can stand on that book to get a better view. Yeah. So, so I ordered it not knowing any better and it shows up to my doorstep <laughs> like a brick. And yeah. I, I, I was joking. I think Murray's the only person on earth who might've read that book verbatim. Right. right. But I had just finished reading uh, Mary Beard's book on Rome SPQR. And so I think one of the, the anecdotes from Rome that's just so pertinent today is the the gradual debasement of money and, and how that can be accepted by the masses until it isn't. And so in the, in the book, they reference the Oxford Handbook of Greek and Roman coinage uh, by William Metcalf. But going all the way back to the age of Augustus, the, the denarius had about four and a half grams of silver, you know, about mm-hmm. 31 BC. And the silver content declined to about 3.9 grams. Uh, and then by Nero, it was about 3.4. But even in the third century, it still contained about three grams of silver. So in almost 500 years, the debasement was only about 33%. So let's put that within context of what's happened in the United States with the dollar, where M2 has grown approximately 160% since the onset of the global financial crisis in late 2007. And M2 has grown over 27% since the onset of the, let's call it the pandemic crisis. Yeah. So there really is a precedent for this. And the denarius, historians recognize, obviously, it eventually collapsed where it went down to almost zero silver content. And at a certain point, the only people who there was hyperinflation and the only people that could actually dictate their wages were mercenaries who demanded to be paid in gold. But this currency, which was somewhat pejoratively referred to now because it ultimately went to zero, like almost every fiat currency in history, it's still actually the base for many other names of currency. So the Spanish dinero, the Italian denaro, and then all of the different Middle Eastern countries, which use the dinar, is all a, a derivative of the denarius. So it's really fascinating to look back at, at the history of that, but then also look at parallels to what's happening with money supply and a, a quote debasement today. Yeah, it's interesting because when you read up on that point in history, the debasement was physical, right? I mean, they were literally either clipping the corners of these coins or reducing the physical amount of silver in the coin. So it was, it was a lot more obvious, either, either by the, you know, the color of the coin or the weight of the coin, you could feel the debasement. And, and I think you know, that ultimately was, was what kind of prompted a lot of the Roman army to say that they weren't going to fight anymore if they kept getting paid in this rapidly depreciating currency. You know, but today, because of the nature of fiat currency, the debasement is is kind of invisible, and it's only really 
apparent if you a understand how debasement works and b you kind of go looking for it because I, I think um, I think uh, it's very difficult for people that don't take the time to understand it to really get it you know because it, you can't see it you, you think prices are going up but the reality is is actually completely different. Yeah, I, I think one area of inflation that's so hard to study, and you've had so many fascinating people on that I just respect so much with their macro-oriented approach, on, actually on both sides of the debate. But behavioral finance is such an important variable when you look at inflation because ultimately the median household needs to have the ability and the propensity to consume. And I think a great example, and you can look at it through the behavioral lens, is to go back to the 60s and the 70s, where going all the way back to the 60s, you had Vietnam War spending. Then you had the beginning of Medicare, Medicaid entitlements. And then obviously you had the debase, the, the removal of the gold standard. And still you didn't have really pernicious inflation up until the point where you had the OPEC oil embargo. Yeah. And then I think the, the average person who's now waiting in line on odd days to fill up their tank at a, an exorbitantly higher rate realized, wow, I'm going to buy stuff because the stuff sitting in my pocket is going down. And the biggest difference between then and today, which is why I think it's actually a bit more precarious today, is that you ultimately had Chairman Volcker rising rates to where you could invest at a very attractive rate of return in the fixed income market. Equities were ultimately got incredibly inexpensive. But today you're being asked at, to, to invest in the 10-year treasury at about 1.6% today. So even if we do get, let's call it target inflation of 2%, you're getting a negative 40 basis point yield in 10 years of duration. Yeah. So that psychologically, I think eventually there's going to be a catch up. It's interesting. There's a great quote by Keynes, which I'll, I'll probably completely screw up, but I remember it goes something like, there's no subtler or surer means of overturning society than to debauch the currency. And then he talks about the process engaging all the hidden forces on the side of destruction and doing so in a manner which not one man in a million will be able to diagnose. And I think that's the pernicious part of this. By doing what you do, by deliberately trying to create inflation, there is a there is a very deliberate aim of that. And I think those points you make about the 70s, you know, I always wonder if it's more of an instinctive reaction. I, I don't think so many people sit down and say, you know, I'm going to spend my money because you know, prices are going up and this is a smart thing to do. I think it's just instinct. I, I just I just wonder how people really think this through because they, they see prices rising and they're trying to spend not because they consciously understand the process and what's coming, but they just think to themselves, well, I just need to get more stuff now because tomorrow it's going to be more expensive. And I think if they really understood the perniciousness of inflation and then listened to the central banks you know, promising to create 2% inflation and allow that to run hot, you know, if more people understood that, I think the attitude to it would be vastly different. I completely agree. And I think that's part of the, the, the tight wire act that they're, that they're trying to achieve right now, because if they came out and overtly said, 
we're trying to ostensibly debase the currency with which we have to repay our debt, there'd be riots in the streets if people thought that you were basically removing their ability to purchase goods in, in the future. So I don't really know what the tipping point is going to be, but I do think that the recent shift away from monetary dominance of policy over arguably 50 years, now you're starting to see a shift towards fiscal dominance. And, and fiscal dominance is ultimately going to get more capital into the, the pockets of the median household. And that you're seeing winds blowing worldwide to favor labor now over capital. And yeah. again, the propensity to spend of those households is so much higher than a billionaire adding a zero to her net worth. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And it's interesting when you, when you go back to that period in the 70s, obviously you had kind of a shock debasement of the currency, if you want to call it that, when Nixon closed the gold window. But then you really did have those forces of the oil embargo, particularly, as you mentioned, just really just driving prices up rather than it being a concerted debasement of the currency. And yet since 71, you know, for 50 for odd years now, we've seen the gradual but constant erosion of the purchasing power of the dollar. And, and it feels as though we're at the point now where we're almost in that terminal phase where, where the, the debasement will necessarily pick up speed for all the reasons you've, you've just laid out. But I just wonder what the solution to that is from a policy standpoint, because as you said earlier on, they were able to tweak interest rates. They were able to combat this. I think we all know now that there is absolutely no way in hell that they can raise interest rates to anything uh, approaching somewhere that can combat even sort of four or 5% inflation simply because of the sheer amount of debt. And that, that would lead one to believe that the only outlet at this point is going to be the currency and, and that will just feed on itself. That, that's the biggest point. I think the biggest point of contention in the inflation debate today is that it's, it's easy for a lot of people to understand how you could have rising prices, but then to, 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 the, to the name of your, your podcast, the end game, what is the end game? Because I don't think anyone knows what policy tools are really out there to do this in a healthy manner where there isn't a lot of collateral damage. And so I think from an investment standpoint, you really have to focus on what types of benefits, what types of investments can benefit or diversify your portfolio to the extent that there are dislocations related to this, because it's, you can debate whether or not you think inflation is going to happen, whether it's going to be captured by CPI. But I think the one thing that is beyond reproach is that it is a risk. And if it does arise, it's going to be pretty damaging to these ultra long duration 60, 40 type allocations. And then, you know, other things that have far more leverage and far more duration in the alt world. Yeah, I mean, this is a point I've been making for a while. I completely agree because I think the average portfolio has had you know, a 40-year tailwind of deflation. And so over time, portfolios will ultimately end up being set up and structured in such a way as to benefit from that. And so with all the false dawns we've had of the return of inflation over the years, I think A, people have become 
much more complacent about it returning. It's kind of this waiting for Godot thing where, where you just you, you keep getting promised it's going to show up and it never does. And I have felt in the last couple of years a real complacency returning to people. And I think because of that, this idea that if we do actually reach the point where inflation becomes the paradigm we have to invest in, you know, there isn't one portfolio in 100 that's set up, A, to profit from that, but more worryingly, I suspect, there isn't a portfolio that's not set up that will absolutely get destroyed by inflation simply because of, of the last 40 years of market action. Yeah, it's really scary, to be honest, that the, the compl- complacency is really the best word. And you know, my, my career was actually shaped in a similar way where I started at Horizon, where the, the firm was just doing incredibly well. Um, in the lead up to the global financial crisis, I joined in December of 2005. And it was just two wonderful years, 06 and 07, and then the, the bottom falls out from the world. And I think that right. really that really shaped my entire career through today, where I think about risk and what can go wrong first, where I think this is just a amusing anecdote actually which actually ties back to inflation is that we bought our first house during covid just because it was it was really difficult to stay in new york city and i was talking to my father-in-law who he bought his first house in the early 80s and his mortgage was at something like 17% right right and ours was below 3 and i said to him i said well what do you think is reasonable to have just as your rainy day fund i think it's I think it's prudent to have seven to 10 years of expenses stowed away when you buy a house just in case. And he's like, you realize I had six months when I bought my first house and I think the bank (laughs) might require one. It's like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I really think it was that experience in 07 and 08. But the, the, the complacency today of people just looking at, you know, break evens and all of these anecdotal reasons just remind me so much of the hubris of 2007, where it was Greenspan has tamed the business cycle. We don't have to worry about these aggressive, sharp changes in the business cycle and everything's triple A. How could it go wrong? And it's, it's these types of risks that pop up. They're really not the black swans that people think they are on a statistic basis. Yeah. Well, look, talk a little about the things that you and Murray and Steve and and the other guys at Horizon started to see that really got you thinking seriously about trying to structure something to deal with a problem that, as we've been discussing, so many people think isn't a present danger and isn't likely to be in in, in the foreseeable future. So we we came to this idea many years ago, five, six years ago, and I was in client meetings and speaking to other people at idea dinners and and colleagues. And for many, for three to four of those years, I was basically getting scoffed at by people just, especially my friends in the growth complex. And obviously they've done incredibly well and they're great analysts. I don't want to take that away from them, but they love the argument that all of this revolutionary disruptive technology is inherently disinflationary. And it is up to an extent, but the dismissiveness really led us to think, wow, this is a great opportunity. The, the um, it's, it's great when you arrive independently, it's something where you're a contrarian instead of being a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian. Yeah. So 
we then start thinking, okay, what is the best way to profit from this? Because ultimately that's what we're in, in, in the business for. And the first step was tips. And I think most people who are not in the business or people that have invested in or know what tips are would think, sure, if I am worried about inflation, I buy a tip and I'm going to do amazing if inflation runs away. Yeah. But today you have the, the 10 year tip at about negative 70 basis points, gross yield. And so if you hold that to maturity and let's say inflation were to go wild, let's say 5%, just grab a number out of a bag, you're still netting 4.3%, which is negative 70 basis points in real, in real terms. Yeah. So Obviously, if you bought the straight 10-year at, at 160, it would be absolutely miserable with your mark-to-market, but then you mature with your, you obviously would mature at a much lower negative real yield, but still come out whole eventually in, um, in gross terms. But then the other really concerning variable within tips is that the yield curve being so flat, ultimately the tip bond is benchmarked to the 10-year because that's the competitive instrument. So if the yield curve were to steepen, you could actually have a mark to market loss in your tip in between, but well, before maturity, that is, to the extent that the 10 year rises more than inflation expectations, which you could be directionally correct on inflation with tips and lose money. So um, obviously people can do rate, people can do steepener trades and people can use leverage and there's other ways to finesse it, but in and of itself, it's really not a, a great efficient instrument and it, it doesn't provide protection in, in so much as a less bad experience of inflation comes. So then we moved on to yield oriented in theoretical inflation beneficiaries, real estate, global listed infrastructure and they've been beneficiaries of the last decade of financial asset inflation to where just historically unprecedented low cap rates on these projects and on these real estate and on these real estate deals where let's say you're able to push on cost commensurate with inflation there's a good chance that the discount rate is going to blow out a lot more than your increased cash flow because the assets have been up been bid up so much right so you go to those two areas, you come up blank. And then there's two, there's another area that we've actually been working on at the firm in some cases for 30 years, but then also in particular in the past five years, which has been different areas within the commodity complex. And there's been a lot of changes compared to the past cycle, but we looked at upstream producers in the commodity complex and thinking, well, under inflationary scenario, they, they have to do well. And we do have a, a differentiated fundamental outlook on these markets, which I think we can discuss later, but the biggest efficiency of these names, whether it be a, an upstream ENP company like a Chevron or a Barrick Gold or Rio Tinto or Vale or BHP is that they are incredibly capital intensive both in the sense that they have a lot of working capital requirements and they also have a lot of balance sheet leverage to lever up an inherently low return on assets. So basically what ends up happening is unless you time the cycle perfectly, you can have a really miserable experience going upstream into these companies, uh, which should ultimately be inflation beneficiaries. But 
very difficult to time the cycle. And I think a lot of people have been hurt and you know, some good historical examples going back to the past peaks in these end markets. So what we arrived at was a method of trying to look at asset light ways of playing these hard asset and markets and hard assets have been something that Murray and Steve and these guys have been focused on, as I mentioned for, for decades, but particularly so in the last five to 10 years. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear the, the kind of the journey with these conversations with your customers, because I, I would imagine when you started talking about this, as you said, you were kind of scoffed at, but what were the kind of milestones along the way where people started perhaps to listen and, and show a little bit more interest and start asking questions rather than just kind of listening to what you had to say and then moving the conversation on? I think as equity markets kept making new highs and yet rates just stayed low, more sophisticated and more discerning people started to think this is just too good to be true where making a fortune on your long duration bonds, but also making a fortune on your equities, like 2020, for example. But I think 2020 was a slap in the face of how obvious things had been detached. But more and more people were realizing, look, everything can't just keep working together forever. And something has to give. And then they said, well, what could give? And we would work through scenarios of inflation, of interest rates, of equity market multiples, and then even people who didn't 100% buy into the idea that you could have an inflationary environment thought, well, I really should have some exposure outside of my beta, for lack of a better word, that's basically worked nonstop for 10 years. As I look across the kind of spectrum of investors, it's funny what, what you said about your formative years in the industry and how you know 2008 was a slap in the face. Of course, that works the other way around for a generation of investors who, um, you know, came in in 2000, you know, if you, if you joined the business anytime after March, 2009, you've had the absolute opposite experience. And so it's, it's really difficult to think about and conceptualize a, a serious outcome of which you have no frame of reference whatsoever. I mean, no one has experienced inflation and since 2009, you know, which is, which is 12 years ago, They've had no experience really of anything but rising markets. And so trying to trying to convince people that there is a threat from either falling markets and, and, and the potential that the Fed won't be able to just step in and save everything. And then particularly, I think, inflation, because even if you, you know, if you joined the industry in 2009, 2010, you'd still have been interested in finance and you'd been aware of 2008 and you and you would have some kind of frame of reference even if it was just from kind of parents or or the news cycle but unless you've gone looking for it and read histories of great inflations of the past it's such an impossible thing for people to comprehend don't you think yeah and i think that brings up another really good point which is the data availability error where the, there's only been one modern inflationary cycle, which was the the seventies into the eighties. Yep. And think about how wildly different financial markets are today. The, the interconnectedness of the global economy, there's other leading global superpowers. There's, there's, there's so many more instruments and so many more derivatives. And so that can't really be looked at in a vacuum. Plus you had a much higher level of interest rates, but that's really the only example of modern inflation. And so 
when you look at how financial markets have evolved, even in my history in the business, going back about 15 years, everybody wants to just put everything, all the data they have into a computer and then put in some pretty formulas and press enter. And it's going to tell you exactly what's going to happen next. And the fact that there is no data to really model and there is no ability to basically predict based off of the lack of history, I think leads a lot of these quant driven and people that rely 99% on Excel to just dismiss the possibility because there, there's, an, there's an inability to model it. Right. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, and so, you know, when, when you guys sat down and thought about how to actually construct something, because every time this, inf- this idea of inflation comes up, people will say, you know, okay, well, well how, how do I invest for inflation? And to your earlier point about tips, it's not actually an easy thing to do because it's tough to find something that will actually represent and perform reliably in inflation. You know, gold historically has done okay, but probably less well than people instinctively think it would have done. It tends to do its job, but not spectacularly in, in those periods over time. So how do you go about constructing a vehicle in which people can you represent that viewpoint that inflation is a threat effectively. We begin with the hard asset mindset. And what a hard asset is, is just simply a finite, high quality asset that there is a very large base of fundamental demand for. So think land, raw land, or energy, precious metals, base metals. And and, and there's, there's unique fundamentals to all of these hard asset and markets today that I think are really different from past cycles. But we begin with the premise of identifying these quality, finite, hard assets with a requisite amount of fundamental demand, and then trying to figure out a way to express that view in the most efficient manner possible in a portfolio. And what we arrived at is these asset-like companies where they have exposure to these hard assets, but through a business model that is, has very little working capital requirements, has very low variable costs, and does not require or, and or has zero leverage. And so that's really the basis of the portfolio. And my, my colleagues have been following some of these companies going back to the 1980s uh, or even yeah. the early 1990s, which now are you know, really compelling opportunities, even though they've performed quite well over the past um, 5, 10, 15 years even, which has not been an accommodative cycle for inflationary assets, I should add. No, no, absolutely not. I, mean, I get we're talking about royalty streaming companies, right? For the most part here, I guess, will that be a big component of it? So that's one of the, the core components. I think, I think there's another component that is really interesting, which we can speak about next, but let's focus on the, the direct inflation beneficiaries. So these direct hard asset companies, a royalty business, and we'll just lump streaming companies, which is more common in the gold industry into this, into the yeah. same bucket for argument's sake, but you own an interest in a mine or a piece of land and somebody else is going to spend in all likelihood, a very large amount of money to extract a resource from that land or mine. And you have a interest in that where you basically get the a proportionate amount of production or revenue associated with that production cost free. 
And that has basically enabled a royalty business model. One of the longest running is Franco Nevada, where yeah. Pierre Lassonde and his partner Seymour Schulich founded that in the early 80s. It was acquired by Newmont Mining and then spun back out, I believe, in late 2007. Exactly, but yeah. basically, they have a enormous scale and incredibly high operating margins because they have this asset light exposure to these mines. And they also have two embedded call options in that portfolio that I don't think are widely understood. So even people that appreciate the merits of the royalty business model, the two embedded call options are one, they have a call option on the price of, of the metals. So whether it's a gold or a silver or a, a platinum stream, to the extent that goes up and they have decades worth of, of future production and reserve, there, there's a value to that call option. But more importantly, they also have a call option on the expansion of these mines and they spend zero. So Barrick or Newmont or Gold Corp wants to expand these mines. They, in, in many cases, have that royalty on that expansion plan and have that embedded option. So I think one of the most interesting factors of Franco Nevada is if you go back to when they were spun off, their original reserve base has been completely depleted. And so this is, this, this is the original portfolio. It doesn't include any acquisitions. It's been completely depleted through today but they actually have double the the 2p reserves compared to 2007 from the same asset base and that's simply from mine expansion that they've paid zero dollars for in energy it, it's similar where the these companies have a fixed percentage of every barrel extracted on their land where they get a a revenue stream from that and in the Permian Basin, for example, which is the, the most prolific basin in, in the United States, if Chevron or Exxon or ConocoPhillips is spending hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a well pad, if you have a, call it a 10% royalty, 10% of what, what they spend to get out of the ground goes directly into your pocket. Uh, you might spend some on ad valorem tax, depending on the nature of the royalty or the company, but you could easily have an 80 or a 90% operating margin and no need to lever up, lever up that balance sheet at all. And so what this has created is these businesses that not only survive, but can actually thrive during the down cycle. You never have the insolvency of risk. You don't have the necessity to divest core assets, and then you can compound in the up cycle. And so that's why it's a very efficient mechanism to play in otherwise volatile, precarious industry rather than going into the, the higher beta, higher risk upstream names. Yeah, you know, these streaming companies, the royalty companies have, have been fantastic, I mean, for, for many, many years, but they're, they're not widely understood and they're not really that well known. People get, I mean, I'll, I'll stick with the gold sector just for the time being, but people get, you know, the gold fever and they just want to own a gold miner. And the royalty companies just aren't really on that many people's radar screens. But when you talk about how they work, and I'm I'm going to go through this for the for the people that aren't familiar with them, just explain because when you talk about that structure, it seems a no-brainer. But talk about what the royalty companies give up in exchange for these options and, and how the whole thing works because it it is different and and it will probably uh, come as, as something new and interesting to the people that aren't familiar with these companies. Of course. And 
I'll differentiate the precious metal streamers from energy because yeah, it's a little place, bit yeah, different. Energy, yeah. but, but precious metals, in many cases, let's just simplify it and imagine that you're a gold mining company and you have this great new mine that you have permitted, you've done your core samples, and it's going to cost you a couple hundred million dollars to develop. It won't produce for three or five years, but you believe this is the future of your company. In most cases, unless you have a very robust production portfolio, you really don't want to take on the cash interest burden of developing that mine. It, it, can, it can lead to a lot of trouble down the road if the mine has overruns or if the gold price goes down. And there have been just debt financing is, is a very slippery slope in, in mine development. And but I should add, certain copper miners actually will monetize their gold stream where they've yeah, already yeah, built. Exactly right. yeah, they'll build a, a copper mine. Shareholders of Freeport MacMoran aren't so concerned with gold, so they'll sell off this stream. So the, the streamer will come in and say, I will finance your mine. Here's, here's your couple hundred million dollars. Instead of paying me a cash interest rate, for the life of the mine, let's call it, there's many nuances to every contract. I will get 500,000 ounces per year and it pertains to this entire mine plan. So expansion is included. And let's say my purchase price will be $300 an ounce. So the embedded interest rate relative to that 300 an ounce versus 1700 something today um, obviously, they're underwriting to a future production and gold assumption uh, where they're, that inherent IRR is basically their interest rate. And so the, the, the beauty of this is that you don't need to lever up the balance sheets. So the best times for these companies is down cycles in gold, where we had the prior peak in 2011, where we were near, near 18, 1860 um, an ounce. Today, we're in the 1700s. So it's been a decade and you've still lost money in spot gold. But yeah. Franco is up about 170% because at the bottom, everybody needed money. Franco had the money. So they were adding capacity to this portfolio, as were many of the streamers, at just incredible underlying rates. The energy royalties are a little bit different, where energy royalties are more, a, a, more of a, a function of property ownership. So if you are a, a landholder in Texas where you happen to own the surface rights and the mineral rights, you might lease out your acreage to an E&P to explore and drill on your land where you get an upfront payment for those acres in terms of the, the drilling rights. But then on top of that, you might retain 20% of every barrel produced that comes out of your land gets paid to you. So in that sense, it's basically a a perpetual option on all of your land and whatever they spend to get oil and gas out of your land, ultimately you have this cost-free net back. And both industries are, are fairly large and robust. I think the gold is actually is much bigger and more liquid today. Energy should be a bigger market, but a lot of these assets are not held in public vehicles. And the public companies that are out there that have historically been out there have been these liquidating trusts in declining, non-actively managed peripheral areas. But now there's probably five, five or six companies out there that are very high quality acreage, growing portfolios, 
uh, and actively managed with, with various student management teams. So more akin to the gold side now, which is growing. And then finally, there's your eclectic royalties, which there, there's a variety out there in, in US and Canada and Australia in, in iron ore and some others that get really eclectic with potash and, and other stuff like right. that. But that's really the, the, the main business model is, as I think is what's so powerful. Yeah. And so the, the vehicle you guys have put together, it's mostly these royalty companies? It's about 45%. I, I think the other area in, in the portfolio is definitely worth delving into because these are companies that the first are direct hard asset companies. They have the direct ownership of the hard asset, albeit asset light. The other 45 odd percent of the portfolio would be asset light, but indirect exposure to these end markets. And similarly, very high operating leverage, modest, modest or no leverage. And you might have a high fixed cost base, but your variable expenses are negligible, but you still touch these inflationary end markets. So I think probably the best example would be a financial exchange. So right. here in the U.S., you could think the Intercontinental Exchange or the CME. In, the, in, in Europe, you've got Deutsche Börse, Euronext, LSE, and then you've got Hong Kong Exchange, Singapore, ASX. They're all over the place. And if you actually look at a geography that you think is interesting, you might actually be better served just buying the exchange because if the end, if the end market's going to do well, you're probably going to do phenomenal just buying the exchange. So let's think about what an exchange is. It, it's really a supercomputer that matches buyers and sellers. And the CME, for example, in the US, their main products are interest rates, currencies, soft commodities, hard commodities, energy. So imagine for a moment a world where we have inflation blow out to 5%. Think about the volatility and the volume in the underlying currency rates, commodity, energy markets. It would just be off the charts. And volatility is the best friend of the exchange because that's what drives volume. And what do they need to do to make that incremental trillion dollars of volume? Maybe you plug in another server. Right. So it's, it's almost a counter-cyclical money-making machine that has exposure to these inflationary end markets. And these exchanges now have these complementary data and clearinghouse businesses. Um, some other examples that I think are worth mentioning would be brokerages. So who would have thought a year ago today, the tightness of container shipping? But who knows if it's going to last and who wants to own a multi-billion dollar fleet of container ships there? You've got these right. IMO standards changing, you've got staffing, but you could be a broker of ships. And basically the, the higher the shipping rate, the higher volume of renewals, the more money you make. So obviously you pay your, your brokers a bit more money, but the, the amount of revenue that would flow down to that brokerage, same thing in insurance. Uh, and if you look at the Marsh McLennan insurance survey, the underwriting cycle we're in right now is really remarkable. And I think it has to do with low rates and, but the, the, the premium growth year over year, as well as the volume of underwriting insurance companies are probably going to have a tough time if the yield curve remains this flat and they can't invest their float effectively, but I'd be, I'd be much happier to own the broker. 
Um, one more example I think worth mentioning are these data and research companies where they have exposure to these underlying markets that are inflationary. So, you know, we'll see if the DOJ allows the, the merger of S&P Global and IHS Market, but IHS Market, their three main verticals are credit, metals and mining and energy, and automotive. And to the extent that you see higher demand for their proprietary data and research, that all flows through at a very, very high operating margin as well. And so there's a really big, robust universe of these indirect beneficiaries that can touch almost any vertical of inflation that we really want to get exposure to. A couple of quick follow-on questions from that. A, how do you backtest these things? Because a lot of these companies weren't listed when we've had meaningful inflationary pressures in the past. It's, it's potentially difficult to backtest them in those periods. And secondly, you know, how, how are they valued now? Because I, I feel instinctively that they're, that they're, like everything else, pretty rich, but I, I may be wrong about that. Sure. It, it, you're right. It's, it's almost impossible to backtest them. And even the ones that have been public for 20 some odd years, the fundamental shift in the exchange industry almost negates the validity of any backtest because the advent of computers, computerized trading and algorithms and high frequency trading, you've been riding this big secular wave of higher and higher volume simply by virtue of the technological shift that's, that's still actually undergoing in financial markets. But we also understand the volatility is what basically makes everybody money. It makes the exchange money, yeah. the market makers, the hedger, basically that's you can rest assured if there's volatility and uncertainty, you've got speculators and hedgers that are just going to be in the market and that flows through to the exchange. The interesting fact with valuation is that most people, some people get it, but a lot of people look at these either as financials that are cyclical and transactional based. And so yeah, exactly. one of my favorites, the, Inter the intercontinental exchange. It's almost 50% recurring revenue. They're actually streamlining mortgage data automation with an acquisition of Ellie Mae. And it's trading at something around a 5% pro forma free, free cash flow yield. So I would say, yes, that's not slap you in the face cheap. But when you look at the fact that it could be a counter cyclical grower and then compare that to the other growthy data names and payment names, whether you look at a PayPal or a Square, a Visa, a MasterCard, a Fair Isaac, all those types of companies. I mean, you're talking anywhere from 30 to 50 times free cash flow. So the the characteristics of the business itself, I think, is, is extremely attractive. And in a 5% free cash flow yield, I think you can still make a good amount of money, certainly relative to peers in these names. What about the commodities themselves? Because that's the kind of knee-jerk reaction for anybody thinking about positioning themselves for inflation is to go straight to the commodities, whether it's you know, commodity-based ETFs or indexes or whatever it may be. But we've got this kind of weird situation where the, the global economy obviously is is growing again, but year over year off a very, very low base. And so really it's hard to see a tailwind for base commodities, for example, unless it is people looking to hedge out inflationary risk. You know, is that a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy or, or is there, is it not that simple this time around that you could just go for commodities? 
I think there's two enormous shifts in the commodity markets, and that's why we have a fairly constructive fundamental view. But it's, it's very inefficient to own the commodity themselves because let's assume you're going to just do it through the futures contract. It's extremely tax inefficient. You have yeah. to roll these things constantly. And as I mentioned with the past gold and oil cycle, you could lose a tremendous amount of money by being early or, and a lot of people do it with leverage. So look, uh, there's a handful of people on earth that have been able to successfully run CTAs and make money. And right. Like, <laughs> right. It is a handful. Yeah. You're right. You know, I, I, I think I trust Pierre Onderon, but not, not, not many more people out there to basically play with my money and in, in commodity markets and energy right. at least. But let's take a step back and look at the fundamentals of these markets. It's where we'll separate base metals, energy and precious metals and think about what's happened over the past 15 years. And then today, which is even more important, but the base metal companies have basically blew themselves up, expanding capacity with leverage in 2003, four, five, six, seven, thinking the BRICS growth was going to basically push price and volume indefinitely. And you've basically had a decade of unwinding, deleveraging, divesting, and they just can't snap their fingers and put capacity back online. So you can see a supply constraint there, both from the fact that they've fundamentally blown themselves up, but then also investors have basically called foul saying, look, I'm not going to finance you the way that I used to. And I think when I go through the other two verticals, there's a, there's a neat way to tie this all together at the very end about the world today, but then think energy. In in 2009, you had, or two, July 08, I think it was, you had a crude peak at about 140. Um, there's been some fits and starts in energy markets where it keeps running up and then the shale in particular just keeps flooding, flooding, flooding. And the market has called, called foul and said, look, you just can't keep plowing money into this. I'm not going to fund you. And you've seen a lot of these big companies, especially in Europe, just unwinding and divesting deals that have been done over the past decade. And then up to gold. We mentioned it before. In, in 2011, you had 1860 an ounce. Everybody was modeling and investing as if it was going to last forever and putting on mine capacity. And they blew up their shareholder base and then they're calling foul. So the ability of supply to basically just click back in is just not there. But I think even more importantly going forward, and this has been more and more prevalent over the past three years, is what ESG is doing today, where not only is it constraining capital going into all of these industries, it's also going to have a big, big limitation on their ability to expand. So go open an annual report for Anglo-American or Glencore or even the Exxon Chevron before they talk anything about what type of year they had their cash flow. It's all ESG. It's we're doing this, we're doing that. And it's very clear that it's going to become a very big factor going forward. And it's going to limit these industries ability to grow, especially in the OECD world where Imagine trying to get a new greenfield mine permitted in anywhere in Europe or certain parts of North America. It's just the burden is going to be so much higher. And then there's going to be far more discerning limits on what you can do in terms of your growth capex. So you have a natural 
a, a slowly building supply limitation in a lot of these end markets. And it might be colliding with this big demand surge to the extent that we do see the, the fiscal dominance of, of Federal Reserve policy really end up with at least but I'm sure they're going to call it a, a temporary boom, but I think it could have a lot more legs, especially because so many of these fiscal oriented policies are driven also with that same ESG carbon oriented lens. But if you do a very simplistic calculation, you've had some guests on that have been fabulous that have actually talked about this. What, how oil and how energy and base metal intensive would this shift be to basically rebuild the electric grids and the amount of nickel and zinc and copper and then the amount of energy that would be required to extract and transport all of the re- the requisite materials for windmills and solar panels and you know not to mention the, the components of those of those things themselves. So if these trillions and trillions of dollars actually do get directed towards these end uses, it's it's hard not to envision a world where there is a big wave and uh, into these base metals. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. But when I look at this, you know, and as I said at the, at the top of this conversation, this idea that there may be a deflationary sucker punch coming our way first, how do you guys think about that? How do you think about trying to mitigate that? And what do you look for to suggest that, um, you know, you're, you're early and, and you have to be defensive? We're almost always early, to be honest. I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and we acknowledge that there could be, there's almost certain to be fits and starts through this cycle. And that's why the asset light businesses are so important where you're not, it's not going to be a pleasant experience if you're very early and there's a big deflationary shock, but it's going to allow you to basically withstand that downdraft by focusing on the asset light businesses so you can really survive and then ultimately thrive when the cycle does go in your favor. But to the extent that we're, from what we're seeing in terms of the the underlying demand, the indications of where companies are going to spend, it it seems like there's at least going to be something temporary in the back half of 2021. And then, you know, I think all bets are off until you kind of see what things look like thereafter. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely right. And the, obviously the environment, the stimulus environment, the, the continued promises of, of additional stimulus by particularly Biden, but elsewhere around the world. And the economy is opening up again with the vaccine. How do you kind of factor those into into the decision-making process? Yeah, I I think every government worldwide now is looking at the fact that they have to be more fiscally oriented compared to the past. And again, that tends to be more labor-oriented as compared to capital-oriented. And so I think... One thing that's kind of been the mantra throughout this entire cycle has been don't fight the Fed. And so I'm not inclined to bet that all of these central banks will not do anything and everything it takes to prevent disinflation or, God forbid, deflation, because then what? I mean, if you have with with the level that we're at right now, I mean, that is that is really... I think the sum of all fears, given where all of these governments' balance sheets are. So hard to imagine a world where they would let that happen. Letting it happen is one thing, but kind of what they seem to be doing in kind of trying to stoke this inflationary boiler is just throwing so much fuel on this fire 
that um, once it catches, it feels like it's going to just burn out of control. Yes. And I think that is the thing that has so many people concerned is that there's been some fairly aggressive statements from central bank officials worldwide where they feel as though they have infinite resources to tame inflation should it run above their expectations. And if history is any guide, it's very hard to stop it once it happens. But then obviously you can raise interest rates, but then what does that do to the underlying economy? So then there's just enormous collateral damage. So I feel like unless they have policy tools that they're aware of that nobody else is aware of to to be so dismissive of the fact that, oh yeah, sure. If inflation comes like we, we can just take care of it. But I also don't really see anybody out there with the resolve of a Paul Volcker or a Margaret Thatcher, who's willing to basically just get punched in the mouth to do what they think is necessary. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I, and I think the damage that's already been kind of put in play here is going to be very, very difficult to stop once it's allowed to kind of have free reign. I mean, you know, the one thing, obviously, that this idea of yield curve control, which may be the only kind of tool they can really use to, to make sure that interest rates don't get out of control, because if they do get out of control, things get very nasty very quickly. But aside from yield curve control, you know, they've promised us to let it run hot. The RBA in Australia have, have said that they're going to target wage growth and look through inflationary pressures until they see wage growth up in sort of, you know, three, four percent. So, I mean, all the signs are there that the green light for this inflation trade for me is pretty clear. And yes, there may well be, it's not going to go up in a straight line. But, you know, when I look at some of the the, the hardcore deflationists, like, you know, like uh, Russell Napier, for example, who's kind of hopped off that train finally, and is now staunchly in the, in the inflation camp, you know, it feels to me like if you want to look through the risk reward profile of this, then betting on inflation, certainly in the kind of medium to long term, is a very sensible bet to make. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the nuances of Russell Napier's argument is this blurring of the line between the Fed and the Treasury. And it's subtle, but it is really a big deal because then it's just saying, look, we politicians are in charge and we are going to print to spend what we want to print. And that has, I think once you cross that, once you cross that line, there's no coming back. And right now it might be implicit uh, were it to come, were it to become explicit, I think then, you know, you really have a lot of people questioning the currencies, the bonds and, and everything within the whole ecosystem. But I, I think, again, the, the most important thing when to think about it from investing is it's so difficult to make a binary bet and be right because you always, you have this decay or because you always have this kind of knockout date. If you don't get your CPI number, if you don't get your commodity number. And so I think the biggest thing that investors should be looking at trying to do right now is figure out eloquent ways to benefit within a intermediate to longer term horizon. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Just before we close, let's talk a little bit about the ETF. It's uh, INFL is the ticker. And, and it's an actively managed ETF, right, which, which kind of sets it apart a little bit. So just talk a little bit about how it's constructed, how it's managed. Sure. So I mentioned about 45% are those direct beneficiaries, the, yep. the royalties, the streamers, the other 45 are the indirect beneficiaries. And then we have about a 10% allocation to these really interesting opportunistic names that 
might not be truly asset light where so something like a grain processor where they have a big fixed cost structure but their marginal their variable expenses are extremely low and so we try to balance all three of those within the context of where do we think the inflationary end markets are going to run first um, and obviously with, within all of the names, they're evaluated with a bottom-up basis, because if you can identify a great business model, that's one thing. There's, there's many really attractive business models out there today, but they're just trading at wild valuations. Yeah. So we then have a second layer, which is to look at the valuation and you can look, there's a big spread in, in exchanges, for example, where there's some that are a bargain and there's some that are just, you know, pretty wildly wild outliers where, you know, look at Hong Kong and it's come down quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, but LSE with the, the optimism around the Infintiv merger. So that's really how we look at it in terms of that combination of business quality underlying end market and then valuation. And we put together something that we really intend to be a full cycle or multi-cycle investment vehicle for people that want exposure to these alternative stores of value that should have protection from inflation. And I think nobody has the crystal ball, but I I think that most people that have thought through all the implications of, of what's happening in the world today understand you need to have some sort of exposure to something different than everything that's just worked perfectly for 10 years now. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, that's the crux of the whole thing. You know, when, when I saw you guys, I guess you launched this in January, I guess it was, I think I remember reading about it in January and I, and I found it fascinating. I've been wanting to talk to you ever since to kind of run through this, because as I said, it, it's, it feels very much like at least starting to think about protecting yourself from inflation is a sensible thing to do, even if it doesn't materialize straight away. And doing so is not as straightforward as one would think. And so I was fascinated to see a vehicle that actually gives you a chance at doing that in a fairly straightforward and simple manner. So I've been watching it with interest and it's been it's been a real pleasure to have you come on and, um, and explain a little bit about it and, and the rationale behind it, because I think it's an important discussion for everybody to have uh, you know, with their own financial advisors and, 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 and an important thought exercise to go through with their own portfolios, just to look through it and understand, you know, how does this portfolio function in an inflationary world? How does it perform? And, and I suspect if you do that, honestly, you'll find some pretty scary answers. Yeah, completely. And, and, I, and I must be honest, I, as a lot of you and Flex interviews and your thinking over the past couple of years have, have actually shaped a lot of our idea process, both the analysis that you guys have added and some of the guests that you've had on, then I mean, you're one of the few outlets that's really giving this a thoughtful look instead of just these kind of aggressive newspaper headlines about what might be coming or what might not be coming. So it's something people really need to think about it and, and try to figure out how they think the best way to be positioned in case this should materialize is. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Well, look, James, it's been a really, really interesting conversation and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do it with me. Just, just um, let people listening uh, know how they can find out more about the firm, the vehicle, and, and you personally. Sure. Uh, so you can just go to our website, uh, horizonkinetics.com. We have a huge library of, of free resources, including a lot of Murray's published essays, which you know, a lot of people find a lot of value in. And, um, you know, my, my bio and contact info is on there, as well as a subpage for, for all of our products, included the, the, the inflation vehicle as well. 
But uh, you know, I wanted to thank you. And this is something I've really been looking forward to. And this has really been a pleasure, Grant. Well, James, I, I look forward to revisiting this as, as this kind of new narrative unfolds, because I, I dare say that, uh, that what you guys are doing is going to be is going to be a really great kind of bellwether for us to understand how this narrative is evolving. So hopefully uh, we can get together and do this again. For sure. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ray. Well, as I said there, I've been looking forward to this for some time now, and I found that conversation absolutely fascinating. As I said at the top of the show, I really do believe this is the number one evaluation that everybody has to make. And I got a lot of food for thought there from James, and, and hopefully you did too, because I think there aren't that many simple ways to even have an inflation hedge, let alone play an inflationary environment, without getting very, very cute. There are things that are somewhat arcane and require not only knowledge that's beyond the reach of most people in terms of the specialist nature of them, but also they require constant monitoring. And, and as James pointed out, you know, we talked about commodity futures. There's a lot of roles and a lot of actions that will suck away your profits very, very quickly. So hopefully you've enjoyed that. I know I certainly did. All that remains is to thank you for listening. If you're not following me already on Twitter, then please do so. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And you'll find out more about what I'm doing on my website, www.grantwilliams.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again in the very near future. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.